Okay, so a middle, uh, excuse me, a mini homily followed by a more normal sized one. So it's like double, double duty this morning. Um, so first, just, just a word about this, this scene of the cleansing of the temple. I, I, I was reading it, and, and uh, as I studied it this week, there was something about it that just like, I think it connected really well with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So um, we, we hear and see in our minds this, this image of Jesus going into the temple area and these people selling things, and he makes a whip and he drives them out, and he's like, stop, stop doing this. And maybe, maybe some of us have heard this. I know that I've heard this from preachers and other people in the past is that uh, Jesus was really upset that these people were taking advantage of these other people and, and charge, overcharging for the animals and, and stuff that they were buying. And um, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just that that's not what the Bible says. Um, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not made clear that that's what's going on. So, so I heard a different perspective this week that I, I think is, is at least equally valid as that perspective. And this other perspective is this, that so in the temple, so this is like this grand thing that is in Jerusalem, the, the holy city of God, and it's, it's the only one. There's only one temple in Israel, and this is the one in Jerusalem. And three times each year, the people of Israel, the men especially, had this obligation to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice to God, where they had to offer sacrifice of animals. And many of them, of course, would travel many, many miles, and their, their animals had to be pure. They had to be in good condition. So it would have been a lot for them. I mean, it was already a lot just to come those miles. It would have been a lot to come bringing animals and to keep the animals in good shape. So there was a provision in the law that they could come without their animals, and then they could buy pure animals from these people so that they could have good animals to offer in sacrifice. So that's, that, that's a provision of the law that was there. So it was a legitimate thing that they were doing in selling these animals. The, the key here is that within the temple, there were different areas. So there was like the Holy of Holies, this, this really holy place that only one person could go one time each year. So in other words, nobody went into this place except for one person once, on, once a year. Then there was another part called the holy place where, where the priests of Israel, the, the Levites, could go to offer sacrifice, but only they could go. Then there was another place where, where more or, or, or all of the Israelites could go. This, this, uh, this more general, like a vestibule kind of thing. But so notice that so far it's all just Israelites. Anyone who was not an Israelite, someone who was not Jewish, were not, they, were not, they weren't allowed in these three places. So when they built the temple, the, or they rebuilt the temple, they included in it this bigger area, this bigger court area called the court of the Gentiles. So that if someone was not a Jewish person, but they wanted to worship the God of the Jews, they could go to this court of the Gentiles and there they could worship God. And so what was going on when Jesus is cleansing the temple is that these, these people were selling their animals in the court of the Gentiles. In other words, they had turned this area that was meant for non-Jewish people, this area that was meant to be prayer and worship, they turned it into like Walmart. You ever tried praying in Walmart? Can't do it, right? Like, because it, it's, it's noisy. There's, there's stuff going on all over the place. There's things stimulating our senses. So that's what was going on. So in other words, Jesus was, was according to this, this scholar's uh, perspective, he was really upset that they had turned this place of prayer that, that these people who could pray here, they couldn't go any further into the temple because of the law. They turned this place of prayer into a noisy, busy place. And so he was upset about that. He says, Don't, like, you've, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace, a place of prayer. So I was, I was thinking about that because, again, it's, you know what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks about how the need that we have for this specific area in our building, in our church area, to be a place of prayer and worship. And, 
And I just think like this is, is so in line with what Jesus is getting at here. And I was, I was actually really, really glad. I've, I've mentioned this last, last week and I'll mention again this week. I was really glad to see so many people kneel down after, or after mass last week and just, just say, stay to pray for a moment or two. And I was really glad this morning to hear, well, nothing for that matter, right? To hear how, how you were so prayerful before mass. And I know that, that maybe not everyone agrees with, with this request that I've made of, of letting this place be quiet, a place where we don't turn it into a, a social hall. I know that, that not everyone agrees with that or understands it, but just know like this is, this is in line with what's in the mind of Jesus, that places of prayer would be prayerful, would be places of reflection, of quiet, of worship. And we have, we have a pretty big building. You know, we have other places. We have, after Mass today, we're going to have fellowship. You can go down in there and, and talk and catch up with people, and that's, that's a really beautiful time to do that. Um, so anyway, so I just, I, I, heard, I read that and studied it, and I was like, gosh, this seems to make sense with what we're doing. It's like the Lord is endorsing this, this new habit, hopefully, that we're, we're uh, bringing about. Okay, so that was mini homily. Now, normal-sized homily. So this first reading from the book of Exodus chapter 20, this is, this is like the big moment for the people of Israel. So Moses goes up the mountain, and while he's up the mountain, he receives these 10 commandments. But the thing is, it's not just 10 commandments. It's that God is making a covenant with his people, with this whole people, this whole group of people. What is a covenant? A covenant is a sacred family bond. So in other words, when, when God is giving these commandments, it's not just that he's telling them what to do. He's telling them, I have made you my own family members. I've bound myself up with you. Like a husband binds himself up with a wife or like a wife binds herself up with a husband. I have, I've bound myself up with you so that you and I, like I am your God. No other people could say that I am their God. I am your God and you are my people. No other people would I say are my people, but you, right? So it's like this incredible relationship with God who is infinitely above us. He comes down and he weds himself to us. Like what an incredible thing. And so by giving the Ten Commandments, the Lord is saying, we're family now. And so being members of this family, this is how this family behaves. This is how this family speaks. This is how this family thinks. And so in in a very real way, this this bond that he's forming between them, he's like, look, I, I I want this. But if you don't want it, if you break my commandments, then then where do you belong? Well, you belong not part of my family, ultimately, is what he's getting at. And that, like you can imagine, it's like, oh my gosh, why, why wouldn't I want to be in the family of God? And yet we know that, that sometimes, a lot of times, throughout the Old Testament times and New Testament times and today's times, people do what? They separate themselves from the family of God by breaking his commandments. And I was, I was so struck by this this week so, so the, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, you, could, you could notice this if you, if you picked up your, your missalettes and opened to pages 76 and 77. You don't need to by any means. But if you wanted to, you could see that of the Ten Commandments, there are three of them that relate to our relationship with God. And there are seven of them that relate to our relationship with each other. And yet, so there's three and seven, and yet, according to the way that God delivered them, he took more time to describe the three related to our relationship with him than he took to describe the seven that relate to our relationship with each other. It's as though the ones that relate to us as as family members, it's like they make sense. Honor your father and your mother. Oh, okay, that makes sense. It's like a natural thing. You should not kill people. That that seems like a natural thing that I, I just sort of know. But when it comes to our relationship with God, 
That's, that sometimes needs explanation, and not just explanation, but what struck me in a real way was that the Lord was really clear with a couple of these about how there are severe consequences if we break these commandments. What I was especially struck by was when he said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. I was so struck by that. The Lord will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. Part of the reason I was struck by that, I suppose, is because I think about different conversations that I have with people, people of all all sorts, family members, friends, parishioners, uh, priests, and how it seems like a fairly regular thing that within those conversations, I hear people taking God's name in vain. And and I, I hear this command, and the Lord's like, I will not leave unpunished. What what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Ultimately, it means using the name of God, using the name of Jesus, using the name of Christ in any way that is not prayerful or that is not speaking in truth to who he is. So in other words, if you say, oh my, you're taking his name in vain. If you begin a sentence by, by speaking the name of Christ and then you're not uttering a prayer, or you're not describing who he is, you're taking his name in vain. But then this morning, I was also reading the Catechism, so this book that we have that describes what we, what we believe as Catholic Christians. And it also spoke about taking his name in vain means anytime you've made a promise or a vow to God or before God, and you've broken that vow. And I think about like people, people that I know, people in my life, people that I, I, I just I know in general, who like... Well, when when do we make those promises? Well, when we promise to baptize our children and raise them as Catholic Christians, faithful Catholic Christians, when we we take our marriage vows, I promise in the name of God to love you and to honor you all the days of my life. You said that to your spouse when you got married. I made a promise when I was ordained a priest to do what? To make myself more and more day by day like Jesus. We make these, these promises, these vows on a regular basis. And as I was reading this, I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I'm guilty of this. How many of us are guilty of this and maybe aren't aware of it? She's like, and the Lord, what does the Lord say? I will not leave unpunished the one who takes my name in vain. And what's more, in the first commandment, right, talking about idolatry, um, what does he say? I, 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 will, I will what? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their father's wickedness on the children of those who hate me, down to the third and fourth generations. Now, I know that if I was to ask you this, and if I was to ask myself this, like, none of us would say, oh, of course, I, I, don't, I don't hate God. Like, we would all say that, I don't hate God. And yet, what, like, if we, again, dig in and, like, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when we give anything or anyone greater importance in our life than we give to the worship of God. So what, is, what does that mean? Maybe some practical things. Anytime or any, anytime somebody, whether that's you or somebody else, anytime somebody says, well, I would come to Mass, but I, I got to plant my crops and I, I just don't have time for that. I would come to Mass, but I, I got to harvest. I, I can't miss out on you know, a couple hours of harvest, I, so I can't come to Mass. Or anytime someone says, well, we, would, we normally go to Mass, but we have, we have sports tournaments this weekend, so we, we just can't make it. Or we have hunting or fishing. Or anytime someone says, I just, I, I can't find time to pray, so I don't, I don't pray. What does that mean? It means you're placing something else to have greater importance in your life than the worship of God, which is idolatry. And what does the Lord say? 
I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I am, I am jealous of your attention. And if you give your attention to anyone or anything more than you give your attention to worship of me, I'm jealous for that. And I will afflict punishment, he says. It was a hard word. And of course, we can, we can think of like, okay, the need to keep the Sabbath. And of course, again, we can, we can think of like, okay, well, I, I, need to, I need to make sure I come to Mass on Sundays, at least to come to Mass on Sundays. But, but again, the Sabbath is not, just, it's not just for coming to Mass. It is that above all, but also for resting. What does the Lord, he, he gives like a full paragraph about how he worked for six days and he rested on a seventh day. And again, it's like, I, I know the temptation in my own life. I know how, how many people in our world, we, we just fail at this. And again, that failure, like, like I've been saying for the last few weeks, that failure might be a result of poor formation when you were a child or poor example that maybe your own parents set for you. I, I'm aware of that. And yet at the same time as I was reading these and praying this, I was just so struck by it. It's just like, oh my gosh, we, we have to talk about this. Now, I know a temptation. Another temptation that we can have is to say, well, that's, that's Old Testament, Father. We don't have to worry about those things because Jesus came along and, and he doesn't have as many harsh Punishments. He doesn't talk about punishment because he's Jesus after all. But again, it's like, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read the Gospels? Like to be absolutely clear, to be absolutely clear, Jesus came to show us God's love. We're gonna hear this in the Gospel passage next weekend, that, that famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Absolutely, God came. He sent his son, Jesus, so that we can have life by believing in him. But just a few verses after that one, we're not going to hear it next week, but a few verses at the end of John chapter 3, John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever disobeys the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. Those are not my words. These are words that come from the Scriptures, from the Gospel itself. What does it mean to believe in the Son? Well, he says, whoever believes has eternal life. But then he says, whoever does not obey. So there's a connection between if I believe in Jesus, I will obey him. And so if I don't obey him, I'm showing that I don't really believe in him. That's hard to hear, perhaps. And yet there are so many other places in the Gospels, and I've mentioned a number of them, that Jesus himself talks about the two ways, the way that many choose, the way that leads to destruction because it's easier and it's wider compared to the way that leads to life and only few choose that way because it's hard and narrow. He talks about how there's actually, like he says, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, he says. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. So what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us, like, we actually need to be holy. We actually need to take him at his word by following his commandments. And again, I know this is hard, and I know that maybe many weekends, probably, probably many weekends, I, I preach difficult things because I find the gospel to be incredibly challenging. And yet, as I was thinking about this, it's like, this is what Lent is all about. Lent is all about a time for us to acknowledge that we have fallen short, not of the goal, not of the ideal. Because if we talk about the gospel as being like a goal, we talk about it as like, well, it's okay if I fall short of it. No, we as a people, and perhaps individually, have fallen short of the standard, the minimum that Jesus has prescribed. And Lent is a time for us to humbly acknowledge that 
and come before the Lord and beg him for mercy. And where do we specifically beg him for mercy? It has to be in confession. How do I know? How do you know if you're forgiven of your sins? If you don't hear those words from the minister of Jesus, I absolve you. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement this week is is fairly simple. And that is to take Jesus seriously. To take him and his church seriously. Like we have to confess our sins. I know I had to go to confession just a couple of days ago. And one thing I decided to do, and this is ultimately what I want to encourage you to do. One thing I had to do is, or decided to do was, you know, like I, I go to confession fairly regularly because I just, I know that it's, it's easier to remember a shorter period of time worth of sins. I know that it's, it's, it's just good to stay in God's grace. And so I, I go to confession fairly regularly. And I know that when I go to confession or as I'm preparing for confession, a lot of times I just sort of go through the same old routine in my mind. And so what, something I decided to do on Friday was before I went to confession, I took a chunk of time, 20, 30 minutes, to read through an examination of conscience. And something that was helpful for, for me about that was that as I was reading through that, there were some things in the examination of conscience that I had just forgotten about. Because again, I was so accustomed to just like my routine of, of going to confession, of repenting of my sins, and going through the motions, that I had actually just forgotten about some different perspectives based on these commandments. And there are also some other things in this, because I looked at a different examination than I usually do, and there were some other things that were like, oh my gosh, I've never thought about that before. And so my encouragement for you is that as you prepare to go to confession, that you would read through an examination of conscience. Take 20 minutes, 30 minutes to go line by line. I've got a bunch of them printed out by the door. These ones, I've got most of these, but there are a few others over, out there that you can read through and just go line by line to say, have I actually done this? Have I actually failed in this way? And again, the point here is not so much to recognize like how terrible of people we are, but the point is to call out to the Lord for mercy and to be fully aware of how much we need his mercy. This is what Lent is all about, is recognizing like, I need you, Jesus. I need your grace of forgiveness, your grace of giving me strength. I need your grace of conversion, Jesus. I need that so badly. To recognize that before him, we are all beggars, all of us have fallen short. And by his grace and by his mercy, he invites us to come up to him. He invites us to repent. It's the very first command that he gives in the Gospels, to repent, to turn from our sins, to come toward him and reorient ourselves toward him so that he can give us the life that he wants to give us.